Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. And I couldn't be happier to have with me the absolutely legendary songwriter Diane Warren, who has her own album, The Cave Sessions Volume 1, coming out in the spring. It's uh, not an album where Diane sings, although she does sing. It's actually an album where she kind of curated other singers to perform. And there's a first single, Times Like This, out that is a really moving song with Darius Rucker singing. But hopefully we'll talk about Diane's entire amazing career. Welcome. Thank Thanks you. For being yeah, it's here. better that other people are singing than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can sing. I've heard it. Um, nah, well... We were saying, you, right now you're in a, a beautiful part of your studio. There is a sign behind you that says, finish my song, bitch. And in fact, at the moment, you are mid-songwriting. You, uh, you said that you, you just came from down the street and you have a song in process. Yeah, it's really good, but I, I don't like the bridge so far. So <laughs> I was working on it, and I really I thought this was going to be a phone call, not, not a video thing. And then I, it's like, okay. Maybe, so maybe getting away from it from a little while. So maybe you can actually help me. So I appreciate that. You can help me cross that bridge. Uh, we'd be deeply honored. So you literally were working on the bridge when you were yanked away from, from your piano? Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's hope that is for the song's benefit and you weren't about to have a great breakthrough. That yeah, you could have really fucked me up and not know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about without giving it away. So some other songwriter steals the idea and, you know, writes a different version and gets it out before you. But so you're in the middle of this writing this song. How long ago did you start it? When you're struggling with a bridge, does that mean you write multiple ones or that you just hit a wall? Tell me a little bit about it because it's an interesting opportunity since you're mid-process right now. Okay. It's a really good song. I'm not going to say the title or anything because... Yeah. Um, you know, ideas, you know, I don't want anybody hearing that idea because it's actually a really good idea. And I don't know, it's just, I don't even know what I do. I just know that today, I, I think when I come back to the office, I'm going to get it. Cause the rest of the song is really, really good. What was the first spark of this song you're working on right now? Just start playing chords and singing, singing the chorus, basically, you know. And you work basically every day. I think you once said 12 hour days. Is that still the case? I mean, I work, yeah, all day long. I work every day. But it's not like 12 hours, you know, continually writing. I mean, I, I write, you know, and then I, you know, I might have a meeting. And I mean, back in the day, a million years ago, like a real live meeting before Zoom or a Zoom meeting. It's, isn't all this, it's so weird, like that we don't meet up anymore. I mean, but, um, but yeah, that's the new reality. But yeah, so I'll, I'll have a meeting or a call, which I prefer the calls because I don't have to put on makeup. <laughs> um, those are a lot easier. Do you have days when nothing comes, or is it kind of just a rolling flow of, of music and words out of you that, that... More that, more that. I mean, I'm just always, you know, I, I, I kind of look at it like being an athlete, and you always have to practice, you know. So I'm always constantly writing. I'm always kind of constantly, you know, working my writing muscles. So I'm always always creating. Bob Dylan once said uh, that his, his songwriting is more confessional than professional, where do you fall on that spectrum, or is that the wrong way to look at it? I mean, it's the right way for what works for, for him. I mean, I'm not necessarily confessional, because I don't write, sit and write about myself, you know? That would be really right. boring, because, oh, wow, I woke up today hmm. and went to work. I mean, not a really exciting, you know, concept <laughs> for a song. You know, so I'm, I have a really good imagination, and I kind of just utilize that. Have you ever in your life had uh, any kind of extended period of... Anything like writer's block? Not for extended periods. I get stuck on stuff. If you have a bridge that isn't working, a specific part of the song, does that mean you write 
multiple stabs at it and then pick the best one? Or how does that work? Well, it's kind of figuring out with anything. It's you figure out what doesn't work to find what does work. If we're talking about this song in particular, I've tried a couple things I'm not happy with yet, but that just got those out of the way so I can find the right. It's kind of like finding someone to fall in love with. You get rid of all the people that, that didn't work so you can find the right one. <laughs> I don't know. That was a good metaphor. but <laughs> I don't know how much of this is still valid, but I, I, I've heard that you work in, in very specific ways. You use kind of, you, at least you used to use kind of the same cassette setup, the same kind of stuff. Did you stick with that method? Yeah. I still have a Walkman. I use cassettes. I know. I think it's kind of cool all of a sudden. So, um, you know, yeah. I just I just do what I've always done. You know, I've, I just do what I've always done since I started doing this. Do you still have a, a little bit of a superstition of changing the methods that, and changing your office and, and all that? I don't know if it's that as much as laziness at this point. <laughs> well, take us through. I mean, you, you, it's usually it's it's the piano or guitar and the cassette. And then I, I think you have you have people who work for you who will work up an arrangement based on your, your simple arrangement. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I have producers I work with that can take the song to the next level production-wise. You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not, <clears throat> sorry. I'm not a producer. You know, I'd rather go to the next song than you know come up with the right you know drum pattern or arrangement or you know. So I'd rather leave that to other people that are better at that than me. So yeah. It's really interesting because there's other hit songwriters, people like Max Martin and stuff, who have the song and the arrangement and the production much more tightly integrated. Right. I mean, I hear, I, I kind of arrange it in my head. There's certain things that I'll hear in a song when I'm writing it. You know, I'm just not a programmer and all that. That's not what I do. But there, there's definitely things I hear. But, but you know, someone like Max is more, more of a producer, writer. I'm, I'm just a writer. I'm old school. I'm a songwriter. Exactly. The way you work is the way they worked in the Brill Yeah, I, f- I feel like I, that's kind of, I feel like I continue that on in some kind of way. Now, what gave you the idea to do an album and to do it this way with a sort of a curated batch of singers? It's almost like you're a, you're a DJ like Calvin Harris or something. Yeah, and- yeah, I'm DJ Diane. That's what I keep telling people. <laughs> I just thought it was a cool idea. You know, it started from, I mean, I, I've seen, you know, Mark Ronson and people like that and DJ Khaled or Calvin Harris. You know, they're usually DJ producers. And I thought, you know, I haven't really seen a songwriter do that. And then I have this song, you know, I, I kind of have to thank John Legend for it, for this because I, I did a song with him and he loved the song, was going to put on his album, then he didn't. And so I gave it to another artist and I told John, I go, you, you know, I just, he goes, no, no, get it back. I want it. And then he didn't use it again. And then I gave, wait, then I gave it to another artist and the same thing that I ran into John. He goes, no, no, I want it. And by the way, two of those artists, are on my album. I'm not going to say who yet, <laughs> but I had to, so I had to pull it from you know two okay. artists, and then he didn't do it again. And the song, it's so great. It's one of my best best songs I ever wrote, and his his performance is phenomenal. And so that kind of I thought, you know what? I have to do this record, and I have to have that song on this record. The world needs to hear it. And then I start thinking of of other artists I want to work with. And I mean, I did a song you know with Ty Dolla Sign. That's amazing. I did did something with Celine Dion. I did some, you know, um, you know there's so many cool. Janae Aiko is on on it, and then every it, it, the crazy thing. It's actually a good problem. You know, this is volume one. I have almost too many songs. I mean, like, because I, I keep writing new songs. I go, well, I want to do this with with this person. I want to do that with that person. So it keeps, you know, changing. There's there's probably a core six or seven songs I know are on this, but other ones keep 
you know. But there'll be volume two, and then there'll be deluxe and all that. I feel like and it's hard to generalize because you write so many songs, but there's been a bit of a turn to the topical uh, in, in recent years, and I think times like this is an example of that. Some man with a sign saying, I need money for beer. So I reached in my pocket and I said, I got some right here. I wonder if you could just kind of break down how you wrote that song. With times like this, you know, it was it was like maybe two, you know, maybe a month or month into the pandemic. I think it was, it was a month or two, um, and I just started writing that chorus, and it, I, I loved it. I, it felt so anthemic and hopeful, um, and I kept hearing in my head. I kept hearing Darius Rucker's voice because his voice, you know, I always say it's it's like comfort food. You know, he's like listening to a friend. So when you were going through all this turmoil and this pandemic and everything being shut down, here's a voice. You know, in my head, I was hearing it anyways, and I, but I, but I didn't know Darius, and um, so I a friend of, through a friend of mine, I got I got his manager's number and called him, and I wrote the song. And the funny thing, there's a line in the song, I saw a man with a sign saying, "I need money for beer," right? And like a few years ago, I was in Nashville, and I did see someone holding a sign saying, "I'm not going to lie, I need beer," you know, I need a beer. I'm like, you know, I, I thought, you know, mental note to myself, that's going to find its way into a song, and, and it did. And it was, and then Darius loved loved it, and. Um, he recorded it, and I'm really proud of the song. I love the video, too. It's a great video. How, how long, a song like that, how long did it take you to write? Um, I mean, I usually spend a week on a song, because lyrics take me the longest time. It's hard to break down exactly how long it took, but but I really put a lot, I, mean, I always put a lot into my songs. I really They have to be really right. And if you're spending a week on, on that song, are there other songs you're working on that same week, or do you, or do you kind of... No, I can't do that. It's schizophrenic. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like to work on one song at a time. And do you always finish them and then move on, or do you have a, a, a stack of half-finished stuff that someday you'll return to? I don't do anything half-finished. I try to finish everything I start, you know. I don't want to get into it unless I love it, because I know it's going to take time. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I wanted to go through some of your songs, if, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, we did this with uh, Smokey Robinson recently, and, and so it's, it's always fun to, to look back. I love him. Oh, my God. He's so great. Oh, he's incredible. I believe that your first real hit was that song, Solitaire. I, don't be, yeah, uh, I just wrote lyrics to that, so I don't consider that my first hit. I, uh-huh. I think my first real hit. Okay, so it's Rhythm of the yeah, Night then. Yeah, that was the first song that I, that I wrote words and music to, and that... You know, was a was a big hit. It's time to get out, step out into the street where all of the action is right there at your feet. Well, that's a song I remember very well from when I was a kid. Uh, it was incredibly ubiquitous. It's a great song. I was just listening back to it yesterday. And it, yeah, it does loom very large in, in your catalog. Tell me about how that came together, what you remember of it. I mean, I can't remember what I did last week, so... Um, so it's hard to exactly I mean I I wrote it for a movie called The Last Dragon and I think I just gotten a Lynn drum machine as I recall remember Lynn drum machines oh yeah so I just gotten that I think that was probably one of the first songs I wrote with that you know using that and DeBarge ended up doing it and yeah and I was also going to ask you about I know you grew up hearing show tunes and uh, Beatles and the Beatles 
And do you remember this? Wait, I just did a song that has two Beatles on it. How cool is that? Ringo's new single. Yes. Oh, sorry. I, yes, I, I was going to get that. Jumped yeah. the gun on that. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a pretty big full circle thing, though, for you, isn't it? Oh, my God. Like, like I'm still pinching myself. I mean, I... You know, I was that kid. I've, I have older sisters, so you know, I got. To, they took. You know, one of my sisters took took me to see the Beatles twice. You know, and I was the biggest Beatles fan, you know, in the world. And you know, the fact that there's Ringo and Paul are singing my song is, you know, along with some other great people. But that's a pinch myself moment, <laughs> to be sure. <laughs> yeah, here's to the nights. Is is that song? I'm excited and, about that song, and people really love it. So. How did that get in Ringo's hands? Did he reach out to you for a song and you had that or you wrote that thinking of him or how did that work? Well, he oh, I'd done a song with him years ago called um, In a Heartbeat. Uh-huh. You know, and um, that, that was like Ringo with Brian Wilson. So that was pretty cool too. A long, a long time ago. I mean, that was like, I don't know, 20 something years ago. And he asked me for, for a song and um, I thought of, and I had Here's to the Nights. I just, I'd never, no one had ever done it. I mean, I probably wrote it a couple of years ago. And so I was thinking, I had the whole concept in my mind because it's almost like, you know, here's the nights we won't remember with the friends we won't forget. It's almost like the follow-up to with a little help from my friends, right? And I was thinking, why? And my whole ulterior motive, I have to be honest, because I said, Ringo, let's get some of your old friends. Let's get some new friends. Let's. And, you know, my whole thing is like like Paul McCartney. Um, and, and Ringo asked Paul, and he said he was the first person to say yes. And then, you know, Dave Grohl and Cheryl Crow and Chris Stapleton, Lenny Kravitz, Joe Walsh, you know, all kinds of really cool people are on the song, too. So it's kind of, and the, I, I love that video, too. It has a sort of like a beer mug swinging in the air kind of groove yeah, to it. Yeah, it's like an Irish pub song, isn't yes, it, really? Yes, exactly. I just think it's going to be one of those songs that can be a New Year's anthem or a graduation anthem or any, and especially now, like, none of us can be with our friends, right? You know, except on, on a Zoom call, which isn't quite the same, you know. So, so here's a song about celebrating friendship and memories and new memories to come. Well, I mean, that was one of the things I thought about hearing that is, is geez, I don't know if I heard a Diane Warren song with this particular vibe. Yeah, it's different for me. I love it. But I have all kinds of songs that, you know, there's all kinds of sides to, sides to what I do. Um, yeah, I was, I'm pretty excited about that one. But yeah, going back to, uh, you know, so it was the Beatles, show tunes. What was the spark of I Want to Be a Songwriter? Looking on, I remember, I remember actually looking on a single, and it was up on the roof. It said Gotham King. I remember wanting to be in the parentheses. Kids back when they were singles. They were called singles. They were called 45s. <laughs> but, I, but I just, th- I was always, I always loved music, you know. So when I was about eight or nine, I just, got, I just felt like I was going to be a songwriter. I'd talk my dad into getting me a little guitar from Tijuana. And, you know, I just started making up songs. But when I was about 14, I became pretty obsessed with it, which is exactly how I am now. Like, I'm no different than I was. Like, I'm still obsessed with doing this. And, you know, I, haven't, I feel like I haven't done my best work yet. I, I'm always getting better. So it's exciting. I love it. I think your dad, like, got you a subscription to Billboard around that time. And, and so you were, you were focused on, like, you were kind of willing yourself into those charts. You, you were focused on Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, and, I, and I studied who wrote every song. I was like, that was school for me. I mean, I kept getting kicked out of schools because I hated school and stuff. But, but once I, you know, found what I, what I love, and, and Billboard was kind of like going to school because I really would research everything because I cared about that. It's fascinating. And I, lo- I love the idea that you wanted to be in those parentheses. You didn't want to be on... TV. You didn't no. want to be on stage. You wanted to no. be in those parentheses. I have stage fright. Yeah, I'm cool in the parentheses. 
That's so awesome. And was there ever a point where you were thinking, hey, I, I, should, I should be a performer too? Not one second. <laughs> now, you know, you very smartly went on to start your own publishing company. You have your own company. You're, you're completely self-sufficient. But what were your steps into the business? Like, how, how did you get from the 14-year-old obsessed with it to the point where you can get a song to DeBarge? I mean, it just took time. I mean, I was signed to a guy named Jack White, not White, not White Stripes Jack White, um, a German producer that produced Laura Branigan. And through that, that's how I, you know, that was my first publishing deal. But, you know, I knocked on a lot of doors for a lot of years. And the way I started my company, you know, it wasn't because I was a savvy business person. It was basically because... I was in a lawsuit with him, uh, with that publisher after a while. And it had been right after, I think, Rhythm of the Night. So everybody kind of wanted to sign me, and I couldn't sign anywhere. My lawyer was like, you know, you need to start your own publishing company. I go, but I don't want to. You know, and I kind of had to. And so I came up with real songs, because that's what I think I write, real songs. And then all of a sudden, all these hits started happening, and there were songs I owned, and I, ne- I never looked back. And so it wasn't it wasn't because I was super savvy or anything. It just, it happened. You know, now, you know, my company, you know, I have one writer and it's a pretty successful company. So, yeah, it's wild. That's that's the best advice anyone could have yeah. ever possibly gotten is uh, start yeah, your own publishing exactly. company in your case. Great wow. advice. It's incredible. I was thinking, uh, you know, that there's all, you know, there's hypnosis and other companies that are going so hard at people to get their publishing. Have they approached you? And I, well, I know Merck, you know, I'm friends with Merck, yeah. you know, he knows that is, you know, a non-starter. I'm, I, it would be like selling my soul and that's not for sale. You know, I it, like these songs are like my kids. I mean, I know a lot of people are doing it and, and, and I get it, you know, I mean, times are hard and, and if you need the money and, you know, with publishing being so valuable, I mean, it's, it's, it's true, you know. It's truly one of the most valuable assets, I guess, in the in the world. It's a great song, but yeah, I'm not interested in selling. No. <laughs> yeah. So on some level, you understand why some people are doing it. It's just not not. Yeah, I mean, that. I get it. I get it, especially if someone's really struggling, or or maybe I don't. You know, everybody has their reasons. I I can only you know speak for myself, and that would be never anything I'd do because that's the, that's a part of me. That's like my soul. You've gone through and transcended so many eras in popular music not so many eras you know not hundreds but but you know it's it's just it's time in pop music moves faster than in real time has there ever been a time where it always comes down to a great song though i mean the the thing that that, that's the one thing that'll always be a common denominator a great song will always you know work it might be how you arrange it or you might you know you have to be you know malleable and you have to be current you know, so I'm I, I'm always you know listening to what's going on and and being influenced by all kinds of stuff. Has anything radically shifted the way you write or made you attempt something radically different as you hear these changes in the way? Because I I mean, there's you know one of the things is that there's tons of songs that are huge hits that aren't even linear songs. There's some songs that are the kind of songs that can be performed on with piano and voice the way it's always been. But there's also a large number of songs that are production sort of oriented, fractured yeah. bits that are just, <laughs> yeah, just that's, a totally different thing. That's not really what I do, you know, and that's kind of a production <laughs> thing. And, and, and there's something cool to that too. But, you know, I kind of believe that if, if it doesn't sound good on my guitar when I'm playing it or my piano, it's not a good song. It's got to stand there for me. With Rhythm of the Night, what did your demo sound like? Do you remember? I remember um, it, there was a wrong note on it. <laughs> and sometimes when I hear that record, I think it's going to hit the wrong note. Isn't that weird? <laughs> like, like on that demo, something was something, yeah, that's what I remember. 
But it was a cool demo. The demo sounded, you know, a lot like the record. The arrangement was there. And what was it like when your dream came true, basically, and you were hearing that was the first song? I mean, again, that song was everywhere. And there you were with your first yeah. hit. It was everywhere to the fact that, um, well, I mean, it was amazing, of course. Anytime I hear my song on the radio, I love it. I remember going to Russia in 1989, and there was a translator. We, a bunch of songwriters went, went there to write with Russian songwriters. Um, and the translator asked me what songs I'd written, and I, um, I started singing, you know, the chorus of Rhythm of the Night. And, he go, and the guy goes, he didn't speak English, and he went, Debarge. And that was in Russia before, you know, the fall of communism. So how, that song got through before, you know, everything. So that was just a cool moment So to realize that, you know, you can't keep a good song down. Incredible. Um, and I, w- I won't go in chronological order. I'll just go through some songs. I, I know that you said a title can be a real starting point for you. A title can be really important. Was Unbreak My Heart, which is, you know, definitely one of the best song titles of all time, uh, of course, famously recorded by Tony Braxton. Was that an example of title first writing? Yeah, I, I had that. Ti- I came up with that title, and I, and I started playing the chorus. You know, with those chords. Yeah, so it's a yeah, it's a weird title, right? Like created a word. You know. It's interesting because I think that song starts out with a pain, rain, rhyme. I remember Clive Davis, when I played that song, goes, you can't, you can't rhyme rain and pain. He wanted me to change it. And I go, no, no, it, it works within, it works. That's what I was going to say. It's like, everyone knows that that's a bit of a cliche, but that's the easy thing is to be like, oh, that's a cliche. But I like in all this pain and out in the rain. That's what made it cool. Don't you know. I think the true genius is to know when you keep that in the song. <laughs> that, that's what you knew. You knew it worked. Exactly. And then, you know, the other thing is you must have been very pleased when you then got to uncry these tears because that takes it, as, lyrically, that takes it to uh, the, next, the next level. And that's the kind of thing that, that's where uh, some genius, again, where some genius comes in. I don't know. It just was the logical place to go. But thank you. And again, I mean, you know, was a Tony Braxton who, did you picture anyone in particular singing that when you wrote it? I mean, I went to play the song for Clive. I thought it could be good, a good song for her. And he loved it for her. And she didn't really like it. <laughs> but she recorded it anyways. Yeah. Is that true? That's what I heard. That's what I heard. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> I imagine she has since changed her mind. I, I hope know. so. Maybe she hates it more. Um, She's had to sing it the last 20 years. <laughs> so. And this is a, a song that, you know, I think it's, it's, it's definitely one of the most uh, moving songs I've heard by you. And it's uh, Because You Love Me. Of course, Celine Dion. And I think I heard somewhere that, that it's a little bit about, about your dad. Well, I wrote it for the movie Up Close and Personal. But I tapped into like thanking my dad for believing in me because he he always really believed in in my music and you know was always supportive. So that was a way to yes. I remember that movie well as uh, Robert Robert Redford and I think Michelle Pfeiffer. It'd be, it'd be kind of like uh, a me too, a me too it, thing now, wouldn't it? I mean, could they make that movie now? <laughs> That's I, right. It's literally <laughs> about. I think he was he was like her yeah. boss. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I loved that movie though. But yeah, right. Uh oh, it's like me too. <laughs> Back then, they were, and, and now that they sit down and, and screen you the movie, and then you sit down and write, or, or is, is that how that would work? Yeah, that, well, that, that movie, I remember the director showing it to me. I, yeah, I, I actually remember seeing that movie in the theater in the moment that, uh, that your song 
that your song came up. The other thing that's great is that that movie was uh, co-written by Joan Didion. So a lot of yeah. a lot of great talent on, <laughs> on that movie. Yeah, that, that, that was that's actually wild. Robert Redford. That, that was a, that was a great movie, actually. I guess that's a, the closest to a Joan Didion uh, collaboration you've had. That's, yeah, that's incredible. I think so she's amazing. Um, so. Another incredible song. Uh, How do I live for Leanne Rhymes? What do you remember about that one? Um, I remember getting in a lot of trouble because there was two versions of it. Um, I remember, I mean, I wrote, the, I wrote the song for the movie Con Air. You got in trouble because there's also the Trisha Yearwood version. Well, yeah, well, what happened was, so, so I wrote it, and um, I wrote it for the movie, and I played it for Jerry Bruckheimer, and he liked it. But there was, I think, 200 other songs, you know, in the mix at the time for that movie. And I happened to run into Leanne Rimes at a restaurant, and I told her I wrote the song for it. Do you want to demo it? And Le- Leanne had just won you know, the Grammy for Best New Artist. She was kind of the hot new artist. And so she came in and demoed it. And remember, I said I wrote it. Remember, like, they didn't know that it wasn't picked yet. (laughs) So she went back and recorded it, you know, did a video and spent all this money. And and, um, I played it for Jerry. And he was excited about Leanne, but he wanted some changes made. And her dad, who was a co- her, um, co-producer on the song, wouldn't. He was like, "I'm not changing nothing for them Hollywood people." I was like, "Wilbur, her dad's Wilbur." I go, "Wilbur, just it's okay, just change it for the movie. You have your record. Your record's great." But he wouldn't do it. And then Jerry asked if it was okay to put Trisha on, and I said, "Yeah, but I can't pull it from Leanne, even if Trisha does it for the movie." And then every then Jerry was like, "No, you have to pull it from Leanne." And I couldn't do that. And then Leanne was mad at me, and Jerry was mad at me, and. Until it became, you know, the big... I mean, Leanne's version is still the biggest hit, the number one um, song by a female artist in Billboard to this day, of all the years in Billboard. Um, so then they all started liking me again, and Jerry was like, I'm never going to work with you again. And then the next year I did, I don't want to miss a thing for Armageddon, so he did work with me again. But it was like, there was a time when everybody was really kind of hating me, and then, then they liked me again. That's what hits do, they make people like you, <laughs> even after they hate you. <laughs> yeah, and Trisha won a Grammy for that, too, so... <laughs> well, there must be a lot of people who like you then. I don't know if it's, it's it may be the single most uncharacteristic song, um, but you have a writing credit on the song You Make Me Rock Hard. <laughs> that was my title, too. <laughs> Kiss. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, Desmond Child and, and Paul Stanley yeah, and Paul, wrote with Paul you. How, how did how did that come about, and how how did you dare to come up with that title? I thought it was a really good title for a Kiss song, <laughs> and you know I thought it was kind of funny. And um, then you know Paul loved it, and we ended up writing the song. And I've done other songs for Kiss. I think I did the only song that they didn't write, or one of them was um, called "Nothing Can Keep Me From You" from Detroit Rock City. So it's. So it's kind of cool to, you know, to, yeah, you make me rock hard. <laughs> Can't believe I came up with that title, but yeah. Um, so, so I have to live that one you down. Like, did no did you think of it for Kiss? In yeah, other yeah, words, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was working, okay. I was working with, with Paul at the time and stuff and Desmond. And I was like, let's, let's do a song where you make me rock hard. Like, <laughs> did they laugh? I can't remember. Remember, I can't remember what I did last week. So, I mean, they probably did. Like, how do you not laugh at that? Well, it, the fact that you wrote the Star is Born instant classic, Why Did You Do That? With the, with the Why'd You Come Around Me with the ass like that tends to make... And that's more- my line. By the way, all these, all these lines that you wouldn't think are me are, are my lines. Like, I, that was my line. I go, I go is it okay if we say that? 
to Gaga, and she goes, "Yeah, yeah, that's fine." And then like, I didn't see the mo- the song in the movie till till the premiere, and then that's the one that Bradley Cooper is like, you know, right. basically sh- saying she's a ho- terrible artist for saying a line like that. I'm like, "Oh, cool, it's my line." <laughs> well, it just once you realize that you came up with "You Make Me Rock Hard," it, it all starts to make sense. There's the whole other uh, lyrical side of, of, of oh yeah, I have work. a whole other side that no one even knows of yet. Like, you know, <laughs> clearly, yeah, clearly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's amazing. I wanted to ask you about a song that, objectively speaking, is is a great song, uh, and yet has an inevitable uh, degree of infamy attached to it, which is "Blame It oh, on the I Rain." Oh, I love that song. Thank you. Great song. It happens to have been recorded by Millie Vanilli or uh, attributed to Millie Vanilli, which again lends it that degree of infamy. But tell me about writing it and tell me about that whole, like, who did you think was recording it? Were you told that these dudes, how did all that work out? First of all, when I wrote the song, there was a group at the time called The Jets, and they had kept it on hold for a year. They were supposed to record it, and then they didn't. And I was like really kind of pissed off because I sat on the song. And I went to see Clive, Clive again, um, in New York, and I, and I knew that was a hit song. And it's kind of a funny little story when I was writing it. I was really bored writing the verse, and my hand slipped. And it goes up a half step in the in the middle of the verse in a really weird place, but it really works. Anyways, wait, <laughs> but I went to see Clive, and he played, like, before I even played the song, he played, he goes, I have this new group. Millie Vanilli, and he played Girl, You Know It's True. And it's almost like the same rhythm, Girl, You Know It's True, Blame It On The kind of weird. And I go, oh, my God, this is so weird because I came to play you this yeah. song, and I had no idea who it's for, and I think it's the follow-up to that. And Clive loved the song, and and they recorded it. Whoever recorded it, recorded it. Um, <laughs> um, but whoever sang it, I love it. I'm really, I love that song. And I, did, I had no idea. I don't think anybody did until, I guess, they were singing live, and it stopped on girl you know it's girl you know it's girl you know it's i mean oops do you think clive knew i have no idea i don't think clive knew you know i think that was may- maybe more common with some of the european groups i think um when you win best new artist though you it probably helps to sing does that put any mark on this song for you does it make it funny for you or how do you how do you kind of see that no no i'm proud i mean I- i'm proud of that song i love that song i think that whole album was great you know, I mean, it's nothing to do with the work I did. You know, I wrote a great song, and that Millie Vanilli album's classic. And I, I hope everybody that sang on there was compensated, that being said. Yeah, seriously. It was interesting to, you know, I listened to it on headphones uh, last night, and, and uh, I, I don't know if I'd ever listened to that song on headphones because it's one of those, you know, radio songs. And it's just, you know, this is great. <laughs> Everything about this is great, from the songwriter to the production, vocals great. It just happens to have not been by those two guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, a little, little problem there, but yeah. Another song that was just everywhere was, and I think it was a co-write, but Don't Turn Around by, by uh, Asa Bay. Yeah, I wrote that with Albert Hammond, and that started out as a B-side on a Tina Turner record. Did she actually record it? She, it was a B-side? Yeah, it, it was, it was <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. Um, that's when Tina had her big, you know, What's Love Got to Do With This was for her, the follow-up album. And she did record it, and Brian Adams produced it. And then they, I remember them telling me it wasn't going to be on the album. I was, I was pretty bummed. And then it, w- it was the B-side of Typical Male. And somehow Luther Ingram, who did If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right, somehow he, you know, turned that single over back when they were singles, kids, and heard the song. And it became, you know, not a big R&B hit, but, you know, I don't know how big it was. Not big. And somehow someone from a group called Aswad... 
an English reggae group heard that and did it reggae, right. and it became massive all, of, all over the world, basically, except here, because I was kind of, my theory was a, a group called Aswad might need to change its name. I don't know. <laughs> as, but, but, but they did a couple of my songs. Um, it's, it's A-S-W-A-D yeah. for the, uh, for the listener, but yes, it, 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 it's yeah, too it's close. Little, yeah. But I don't know. It was, a, <clears throat> sorry, it was a great record, and um, other people recorded it along the way, like Neil Diamond did a version of it. Bonnie Tyler. It got done by a lot of people. And again, Clive, he heard the Aswad version and gave it to Ace of Bass. And their record's cool. They kind of went, you know, to a minor key in the chorus. And, and it was really fresh. I loved what they did. Uh, you wrote a, a few songs with, with Albert Hammond. I, I think you wrote... Nothing's Gonna Stop uh, Us Now. We did. Yeah. 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 What is he like? Because a lot of people know his son. Uh, <laughs> he, is, he is, for the record, the, uh, the father of uh, Albert Hammond Jr. from The, from the Strokes. Yeah, and I remember Albert Hammond Jr. in the room when we were writing, and he was a little kid, and yeah, it's just odd. Um, no, Albert's great, you know, it's great. We, we, we did some really good stuff together, and he's a good friend of mine. I love him. Uh, so so I'm basically a member of the, the Strokes was sitting there running around while you were writing songs for, for Jefferson Airplane. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A member of the Strokes as a, as a child was running around while we were writing a song from a movie about a guy fucking a mannequin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Was that child abuse? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he grew up to be in, in, the, uh, in the Strokes. He's doing fine. One of my favorites, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. I could stay awake just to hear. That's such a great song. How do you write a song like that? How, where does that come from? I mean, again, it was a title I had, and I, I saw the end of the movie. I met with Jerry Bruckheimer. Remember, he said he wasn't going to work with me ever again a year before. So he changed his mind. Um, <laughs> so so they, they, he actually showed you, like, the it's Armageddon, right? He showed you the end of, he showed you just the end of Armageddon and said, here. <laughs> yeah, and told me the story of it. And, but it was a scene. I, I knew it was going to be like when they're their wedding. And, he, you know, he kind of walked me through it. And, you know, I went back and wrote the song. And never in a million years thought Aerosmith would do it, but they did. So that was pretty cool. I mean, it's still cool. Because, you know what, like, I kind of thought a, a female vocalist would end up doing it, but it's so much more powerful, especially like Steven Tyler, you know, that rock kind of thing, being that vulnerable in a song really worked. Now, I, I assume a lot of the, the dramatic octave jumping and stuff, that was purely his arrangement of it. That wasn't built into the... The ending and stuff, you mean? Yeah. That, yeah, that was Steven, you know. Yeah. Being Steven and doing the cool shit like only he can do. That must have been, I mean, it's, it, it must, I'm sure it's always interesting to and sometimes maybe appalling to hear what, uh, what people do with the songs. That must have been a particularly interesting case of kind of putting some, some rocket fuel into what was a, a piano and, uh, and voice demo. Oh, I mean, I remember the first time hearing it and just being literally, you know, knocked off my chair of how great that was because I wasn't in the studio or anything. And I, so I didn't hear, you know, in that beautiful, like, you know, great intro with the strings and just, it's, it's just a great, that, sh- that should have won record of the year. That was a great record. Matt Serletic produced that. It's incredible. And another great one, If I Could Turn Back Time by Cher. A great video, too. It had nothing to do with by that. By the way, but, she still uh, fits into that outfit. She does. She does. <laughs> don't you hate her? Just kidding. It doesn't surprise me one bit. She's awesome. T- tell, tell me about that um, one. It was a song I thought was, was a great song for her, and she hated it. And so I went to the studio when she was recording another song of mine. And literally, when she was in the lounge, got on my hands and knees and held her leg down. Until she said she'd try it out. She goes, I hate that fucking song. I hate it. 
I go, well, I'm not letting your leg go until you tell me. That I go, look, I'll pay for the track. She goes, okay. I go, like, yeah, I'll pay for it. If it doesn't work, then it's all my cost, you know, but I know the song's right for you. She goes, I hate it, but I'll do it. I'll try it, you know, and then, yeah, the rest is, that's probably her most iconic song. So it, that worked oh, out incredible. too. Oh, that's incredible. And then when it, when it gets to the point when you see the uh, the video with the assless chaps or whatever, do you just laugh to yourself knowing that it almost didn't even exist? Yeah, I mean, in the whole... The whole, it, yeah, and that video. I remember, like, that's how long ago it was. Like, were that they couldn't play that till after midnight because it was so risque. What? <laughs> really? Well, she it, when she's on that cannon, I guess it's a little phallic, but that that's nothing, you know, compared to, you know, now. People do not find Michael Bolton cool, but you wrote some great songs for him. I, I, you know, how, I think Michael Bolton's I, cool. He's a great singer. He is a great singer. I've never been cool either. <laughs> what does cool mean? <laughs> It's cool is is overrated, but but you wrote you wrote that uh, that song. How can we be lovers? And that's just an undeniable. Yeah, that's a, song. was a fun song. But my favorite song was a song I wrote for him called "When I'm Back on My Feet Again." That's still one of my favorite songs I've ever written. And the the great thing about Michael is we we would write songs together, you know. And but then again, if I gave him a song like that, or when I wrote "Time, Love, and Tenderness," which is a big hit for him too, that I wrote that he you know he was open. He was open to doing it. Which was is a great quality, I thought, because he didn't really need to do that. But if you if you heard a song that was right that he didn't write, you, you and and Albert Hammond again, I believe, wrote a, a song that people might not might have forgotten about, which is actually a duet between Aretha Franklin and Whitney Houston. Uh, it isn't. It wasn't. It ain't never gonna be. Did you get to be around for the recording of that by any chance? Uh, no, I wasn't there. But it was p- pretty cool to have those two artists on that song. Wasn't that, that was big the- of a hit at the time, but but I, but I still was proud of it. That must have been a hell of a day in the studio, whoever got to be there. Yeah, I wish I was there. And you, speaking of collaborations, uh, you wrote that uh, the, the Gloria Stefan and NSYNC collaboration, uh, Music of My Heart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that song. Yeah, that was one of my, how many, one of my 11 Oscar nominations that I lost. <laughs> but, I was, but yeah, yeah, I love that. It was a good movie, too. And, and I remember they, the movie had a different title, and they changed the, the movie title to the name of that song. Now, are there songs... You've written a tremendous number of songs. Are there songs that you've written that you've almost completely forgotten that you couldn't sing the chorus of by this point? Yeah, you have no idea. Like, so many. And so many are really good. And I'll, all of a sudden think about it, like, you know, songs I haven't even demoed yet that, that are there. I'm like, God, this is a great song, you know. So then it's like someone's, like for Ringo as an example, like Here's the Nights is a great song that I kind of forgot about. And then when he asked me for a song, it was like, oh, my God. And, and so sometimes it's, it takes that, you know, someone you know, asking for a song. But I, but I, I need to, yeah, I probably need to go demo some of these things. And cause there's, some, there's some great songs in there. Because I'm always writing new ones. Well, how do you avoid repeating yourself, whether lyrically or musically or both? Or, and or ac- literally accidentally plagiarizing yourself? I know. Rip, not, I rip myself off and then I have to sue myself. So, you know. Um, you know, I try, I try not to. But, of course, there's times, you know, I'll write something that sounds a little bit like something else I did. And I don't know. And uh, we're all actually almost out of time, incredibly. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about uh, writing I Was Here for Beyonce. And I think you also were, were in the studio, possibly, with her. I was, and that's one of the best experiences ever, you know, for me. So when I wrote I Was Here, I wrote on my guitar because a friend of mine was three hours late. And I had my acoustic guitar there. And I, and I was thinking, like, I was just, you know, I started, uh, you know, with the line, I want to leave my footprints on the sands of time. I was like, ooh. That's really a good line. And I, I just, that song kind of just started writing itself. <clears throat> and I thought, this could be a really great song for Beyonce. And it could also be 
like a song for like Leona Lewis was really big at the time, you know, or Susan Boyle, both Simon Cowell's artists. So, you know, I, I did a little acoustic guitar version of it. I sent it to Simon. And I, then I, I called Jay-Z and he called me back and I, and I played it on the, on the guitar. I thought, you know, I thought this could be, this could be great for Beyonce. It's different for her. And he, he loved it. He said, stay by your phone. She's going to land, you know, as soon as she lands, she's calling you. She did. I played her the song. She goes, okay, this is Monday. Her album was supposed to come out Friday. She said, I'm going in Wednesday and I'm recording that song. I'm stopping my album. So I went in the studio with her and blown away by that vocal. And that was, then she goes, well, I'm gonna, let's take a dinner break now and then I'm going to go back and do it again. I'm like, what? What do you mean do it again? Like, it's perfect. She goes, no, I'm going to get it better. And that's the difference, by the way, between a great artist and not a great artist. Right? I mean, that's why she's going to be around forever. And so, anyways, the funny part of the story. So, I couldn't even sleep all night because I was so excited about, about how that song was coming out. I wake up in the morning. Remember, I'd given it to Simon Cowell. I had an email from his head of A&R going, you know, the song, it's nice, but it just doesn't go all the way for us. You know, feel free to send more stuff. And so, my email back was, funny enough, I was in the studio last night with probably the biggest artist on the planet. And funny enough, it went all the way for her. Smiley face. So that was a fun email to write. <laughs> right after, I mean, the morning after being up all night with that, getting a rejection letter. So that was for I was here. I guess actually we're out of time, but Diane Warren, thank you so much for joining me. I feel like we could have, uh, we could do this all day. It was so much, it was I know. so fun. I know, for me too. So thanks again, and uh, we're looking forward to the album uh, in the spring. Yeah, or summer, or whenever. Or summer. Because <laughs> <laughs> it keeps changing. I mean, every minute it changes um, in a good way. It's, so thank you. It's that kind of year. And that is our show for today. Happy New Year. Thanks again to Diane Warren. And we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are, of course, a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. As always, thanks for listening. Stay safe. It's a crazy world out there, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.